Welcome back or welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm a certified professional coach specializing in confidence, joy, and mindfulness. Before we get into today's episode, I want to share a concept with you. Memento mori. It's a reminder that we're all going to die. Okay, that sounds super morbid and it is by definition, but the point of it is to remind us that we are right here and it is right now, that there is nothing but the present. I can, I can take it in this direction where I feel really sad. We're all going to die. Everything is temporary. I understand that. And yet if I think I only have a week left to live, I just want to stay with my family and hug them all the time. But if I shift it to, what if this is the last time I'm doing this? What if this is the last time I'm going to bike on this trail? You know, maybe it's because I'm going to die. Maybe it's because the trail's not going to be there tomorrow or something like that. The, the magic here is in the remembering. It's in the remembering to see the magic right here and right now. I recently did this while I was biking on the local bike trail. And you know what? I noticed things that I hadn't really seen before. I saw these flowers that I would call them Queen Anne's Lace, but that's from New England. And I don't know if that happens here in Florida, but that's what they reminded me of. I saw these bright red flowers on a tree and wow, it was just like flames. Like they were so beautiful. And then this egret flew out in front of me, like right in front of me and just followed followed or led. I guess it led me down the trail going right through the trees that were overhanging the trail. <sighs> Magic. So what I want to leave you with right now is just a reminder that we can access this place of extreme presence by simply reminding ourselves, what if this is the last time? Go with a more morbid sense if that feels good for you. And if it doesn't, don't go there. Make this feel good for you. Make it work for you. If it doesn't work, leave it. All right. Now, on to this week's episode with Kelly Nantaris. She is a book editor who's edited books by all these amazing artists. And then she went on to write her own book called The Book You Were Born to Write. We get into a whole bunch of stuff about writing a book, editing a book, all of that. And then we take a hard turn and get into her meditation practice and it gets juicy. There's good stuff in the book part two, but you might hear my energy shift as we talk about meditation because I got really excited about all the stuff she shared. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please, please, please share this episode, shout it out on social media, tag me at Kelsey Abbott CPC, and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and a five-star rating. It helps so much. Thank you. Go forth and be awesome. Welcome to the Finder Awesome Podcast. My guest today is Kelly Notaris. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Kelsey. I'm super happy to be here. I am so excited you're here. We've been having fun together before we hit record. Yep. <laughs> and now we got to get into business. That's quickly right. turned to fun. Yes. Business is fun. Um, let's start with your book. Great. The book you were born to write. Yes. 
What inspired it? You know, the truth is that I've been in the book publishing business for 20 years and I got into the business because I wanted to write books myself. And I am somebody who likes to always know everything about something I want to do so I can actually really do a good job at it. And so here I was walking out of college and I had no idea how someone actually wrote books or did that kind of work. I was working in a bookstore, which is part of what the inspiration was for wanting to write books. And I had a literature minor and communications, et cetera, but I basically didn't know what the process was like. So I decided the best way to learn would be to move to New York and actually get a job in an editorial division at a publishing company. So that's what I did. And then my whole life sort of took off. You know, you just get immersed in the process and in your business and all that. And my interest in writing books actually dwindled a lot <laughs> being in the book publishing business, both because I was reading books so much and working so much on books, you know, publishing, editing a dozen to two dozen books a year. It was like a lot. I, in my free time, the last thing I wanted to do was sit down at my computer. And also because I realized I didn't have the, the passionate topic that I was ready to write about. And I've not been, I'm not much of a fiction writer. I'm more of a nonfiction writer. And I know that nonfiction actually sells more easily than fiction. So I thought that's where I want, that's what I would like to do is write nonfiction. But again, I didn't really have a topic yet. So fast forward, I ended up leaving New York when I was 30. I moved to Boulder, Colorado and worked at Sounds True and set up their book division for them and was there for four years before I got a ghostwriting gig that sort of took me out into the world, into the, um, entrepreneurial freelance world. And then a few years after that, I started KN Literary Arts, which is a editorial studio. So what really prompted me to start KN Literary was that I was speaking at the Hay House Writers Workshops, which are these two to three times a year gatherings of aspiring authors who really wanted to publish books in what I call transformational nonfiction. So this is self-help, personal growth, spirituality, things like that. And they needed the information that I had. And a lot of times they'd come up to me, I would give a talk on editing because I was an editor. What is an editor? When should you hire one? You know, what kinds of editing are there? Things like that. But people would come up to me and say, wow, I need the information you have. You, you obviously know so much. And I thought, oh yeah, exactly. I used to be you. And I learned it. I went in and learned the, the information. And so I was actually just sitting at one of those conferences in April of 2017 and the light bulb went off. You know, like I often say to people, cause I have so many clients that feel bad that they haven't written a book yet. They've known they want to write a book for 20 years, but they haven't written it yet. And I always say that books are born on their own schedule. So it's not necessarily up to you when your book is ready to be born. And definitely that time was a very trying time in my life. It was not the best time for me to start writing a book, <laughs> but I looked around at that room and I saw these 250, 300 people who needed the exact information that I had. And so I just thought, now's the time. And I went home on the plane ride home. I wrote the outline for the book. And then next thing you know, I, you know, I happened to mention it to my friends at Hay House and they were like, well, we want to publish it. And I was very surprised about that as well, but said, okay. And so soon I had a contract and a deadline and I wrote it in about five months. So that's, that's where that came from. And it published uh, in November. Okay. So, so much to say. First of all, I love that the book chooses the timing. Yes. I completely feel that. I always say people, I've been asked many times when I'm writing a book and I'm like, I'm not. Right. I'm not. <laughs> Yet. I'm not. <laughs> it may happen. You might see it, but it's yes. not happening right now. Yes, exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. So let's back up. You said yeah. you had a literature minor. What'd you major yes. in? Yes. I actually majored in law. 
I thought, well, it's one of those funny things that people who are good writers oftentimes get shuffled toward law um, when you're looking at kind of career choices because you need to be a good writer, a clear writer to be a lawyer. And that's a place where you can make money, I think, is why people shuffle you over there. They're not like, oh, why don't you go be an author of books? (laughs) Because, you know, writing books is not necessarily, it's not a fail safe, let me put it that way, in terms of making money. Um, So I thought I was going to go to law school. And in fact, I graduated um, with every plan in the world to take one year off and then go to law school. But in that year, I moved to Paris and lived there for eight months and found myself in the American bookstore there all the time, you know, wanting to buy the New Yorker and new books that were coming out. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to give this a try. So when I got home from that sort of um, time away, I started looking in the New York Times for publishing gigs and ended up with interviews in New York and got one of those jobs. And that was the beginning of the rest of my life, as they say. (laughs) And when you were a little kid, did you want to write? What did you want to be when you grew up? When I was a little kid, funny enough, like the first thing I remember wanting to be is a farmer, which is interesting because I do live in rural America now, which is a huge surprise to me. And everyone around me are farmers. Um, I wanted, I always wanted to work with the animals. I think I really loved that kind of thing, but I was a huge reader. And there's this apocryphal story in my family about my dad wondering why I was in the shower for 45 minutes coming in and finding that I had like, you know, rigged up this like, umbrella-like situation in the shower and I was sitting reading in the shower. (laughs) That was the end of that. I definitely was not allowed to do that again. But uh, yeah, I was a huge reader. My mom is a huge reader. Um, She reads, you know, a book or two a week. And so I just really got into that flow and that, so reading was always something I loved to do. And I did enjoy writing and I was always a good writer and got great, you know, grades in English, et cetera. But I hadn't ever thought I was going to be a writer for a living. And when are you going to patent that shower writing? Yeah, I know exactly. The shower umbrella. (laughs) We'll see what people say on the notes to the show. If you want the shower umbrella, let me know. I'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Conservation issue there. Right. I know. I mean, you know, I was like 11 at the time, but yes, I would not do that today. (laughs) And animals, how do they show up in your life now? That's interesting. I have views of animals out my windows. There's horses next door and cows in the field far distant. Um, I have always been a dog lover and the intention is there that I will get a dog as soon as I stop traveling so much, but the travel gets in the way of, of having a dog. So they're not, they're not at the forefront of my life right now, truth be told. Yeah. I, I announced when I was three or something that I wanted to be a doctor for furry animals. Oh, and yeah. how do animals show up in your life now? Now, well, I was a marine biologist. Oh, so that's after right. College, yes. Sure. I, so Those are not furry animals. Mammals but. <laughs> do have, all mammals have fur. It's just that's true. visible when it comes right, right. to like, exactly. dolphins and whales. Um, and then uh, now I have a dog. Oh, okay. And when I ride my bike by all the horses and cows and goats, I always say hello to them. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I actually get, I get the chance to hold like baby goats and baby sheep a lot out here. It's kind of one of the benefits of living where I live. They're all over the place and little like chickens and all sorts of cute little animals, but they're not mine. They're not my responsibility. I feel like I'm taking care of other creatures in terms of the authors that I work with more than I am animals these days. (laughs) That's actually a really cool insight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So the shift from, well, actually, can you tell us more about, I realize the word editor, like in the publishing industry, the word editor is thrown around and I think everyone has like a kind of 
fuzzy sense of what right. an editor is and what an editor does. Can you yes, hundred percent. Uh, Cause this is definitely a place where I help clarify things. So a lot of times when people think of an editor, they think of somebody who just is going through their manuscript with a red pen and making sure that all the words are spelled correctly. And that is one type of editing, but that actually comes at the very, very end of the editorial process. So well prior to that, an editor will be involved in helping you figure out what the idea is you should be writing about, um, deciding what the outline for the book should be, the structure. Could, there's nothing more important to the success of a book than having a very strong structure. And many people think they should know how to write a book. This is a funny thing that people think they should know because they wrote essays in high school or something like that. And I always say, would you be able to paint a painting like Rembrandt? I know I can't paint with oils. Someone would have to show me how. And maybe I'd have the natural talent once I got the skill. But Writing a book is a, is a similar thing, and it does begin with a very strong outline, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, so an editor can help you figure out what the outline for, for your book should be. And in fact, I often say, please, on behalf of the editor that will come work with you down the line, try to work with someone early on so you can start off really strong. That's both for your editor's sake and also for you, because if you don't do that, then at some point, an editor either an editor will tell you, you need to go back and completely overhaul this book or they won't. And no one will want to read your book because it's just too confusing to get through. So we do that kind of development at the beginning and that's called developmental or structural editing. Um, that goes right through to a first draft where I'm looking through the book and I'm thinking, wow, this chapter is really good, but this one's kind of weak. We need to beef it up. We need a story here. We need an exercise there. This idea is not hanging together. This character that you brought in at the beginning, we never found out what happened to them by the end. So these are the big picture global ideas and concepts that are critical to a book's success. And all of that takes place before an editor ever picks up a pen. So I will write you an editorial letter and I'll explain what's working about the book and also what doesn't seem to be working and then give you my ideas for how you might revise it so that the whole thing can hang together better. And that's developmental editing. Then we go into what's called line editing, which is a whole phase that's about the art of the sentences, even more than grammar. It's about clarity and flow and just the way that someone's reading so that they don't get stopped along the way. I want to read a paragraph and never even remember that I'm reading. It feels just like flowing through water, right? And if I get to a place where something stops me, I'll give you a suggestion for how you might change that so that it flows again. And then after that, it goes to a copy editor whose job is to you know, dot the I's and cross the T's, make sure that you've got all your, all your lists are bulleted lists versus, you know, some bulleted, some numbered, um, making sure that your headings are going to be the same size in the printed book, um, making sure that you're following the Chicago manual of style, if that's the style guide that you want to use, things like that. So that's very, very critical phase. I often say that that copy editing phase is invisible unless you don't do it. So people want to skip over it because they're like, I don't even see why I need to do that. And then if you don't do it, I will see it immediately. I have a very good friend who just published an amazing book, truly. Um, and I just talked to her because she self-published it. And she worked with me to get her title right, but she didn't actually work with my company on the editing. And so I'm reading the book and I'm hoping that I will feel that I'll see she worked with a copy editor and a proofreader, which is the very last person you work with. Um, but she did not. And I discovered that when on page three, she began a parentheses in a sentence and never put the closing parentheses on. And it just got worse from there. Those are the little things that your readers will 
notice and you will not no longer cons be considered an expert in their mind if you have that. So you need that copy editing phase whose job is really to take care of that. And then once the book is set into type, so once it actually looks like the interior pages of the book, that is when you do proofreading, not before. And definitely you do it after that. Most traditional publishers, like the big publishing houses, put your book through five to six rounds of proofreading. So just to say, like a lot, again, a lot of my clients are like, well, my, my sister's daughter you know, just graduated with a degree in English and she can proofread my book. And I'm like, no, no, you need to work with people. If you want your book to, to look like and feel like and read like a book that's published by a HarperCollins or a Hay House or a Random House, you know, you need to actually give it the kind of editing that a book would get if it went through that process. So that's one of the things that I help people understand is that there is an investment that's required if you want to get your book operating at the same level as the big houses. And why do you do the proofreading after it's already in book form? <clears throat> because I always say it's like the sock that gets removed from the laundry. There's no reason why. It doesn't make any sense because these days it's all happening on desktop publishing. So you just cut and paste the content into the layout that the des interior designer has created. You would think all the words would make it over there, but I'm here to tell you they don't. <laughs> I don't know how or why, but words get removed moved, they get switched around, things get misspelled. I mean, I don't know where it comes from truly. Um, and so that proofreading is those, those interior pages, the pages that look like the interior of a book are called proof pages. So proof reading is reading through the proofs. This words obviously comes from back when there was an actual printing press and they would lay out each letter with a little type, you know, type letter. And it was, there were many, you know, errors that would get introduced when you were doing it that way. So someone would read the proofs and then the typesetter would go back to that, you know, particular block of type and change the words so that it, you know, was the correction was made. Luckily, it's not that labor intensive <laughs> anymore, but it's still the same idea is that once they're set into type, that's when we need to make sure that, you know, there wasn't a missed punctuation point or there wasn't, you know, a, this is supposed to be capitalized, but it wasn't, things like that. So definitely always, always, always have a proofreader look at your pages after they've been laid out. And you, okay, so as you were describing sentences and the, yes. the sentences, you lit up. <laughs> so what does it feel like in your body when you're reading really delicious sentences? Oh, gosh. I love it. I'm reading this book right now. Um, it's called The Gene, An Intimate History by uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee. And it's a nonfiction book about basically how genes were discovered, our genes in our bodies. And he is such a fantastic writer. And he's funny. And his, fun, his humor is very subtle, where he'll just drop something in, almost like a tiny little pun, but so sophisticated, you could just skip right over it. It feels like finding Easter eggs in the book as I'm reading. And I'm just like, this man is brilliant. And all of my esteem for him just goes straight through the roof. Like a good writer, a funny writer, but also super smart. I mean, honestly, there's nothing I, I love more. It just really makes my day. And I love editing. So you were just saying, you know, I lit up. Well, line editing is my favorite, you know, part of the process. And as a content editor, I only do developmental and line edit. I hand it over to a production editor or a technical editor to do copy editing and proofreading. So that line edit is where I get lost. You know, they talk about being in flow where you just are in something and you look up and two hours has passed. That's the way I feel when I'm editing. I love 
cleaning up sentences. <laughs> I know that sounds dorky, but it is actually what I love. So um, yeah, you, you, yeah, you hit it. It does sound dorky and <laughs> I love it. Fabulous. Good. So I get it. Yeah. What was it like to go from being on that side of things mm. to the writing side of things? Yeah, I actually loved it. It was so great. And, you know, I think that there's a way that the book I wrote is, um, it bridges what I, my editing world, it is me opening up the editing world. So it's not two different things. If I'd gone to write a memoir or a novel or, you know, even a self-help book, it might've felt different. This was more me getting to talk about the thing that I'm passionate about and that I love, which is editing and really well edited books and people getting their books into the world. And so it was more fun than anything else. And it also was one of those things where I did not have to dig deep you know, I know a lot of my clients are writing their personal stories and they're digging deep through, you know, childhood trauma and um, difficult circumstances and, you know, all sorts of things to get that book on the page. That was not the case for this book with me. I was delighted. And I talk about in the book, picking your ideal reader, someone who you can be writing to. And I wrote down what I would be saying to my ideal reader. And my ideal reader was actually my friend, Rob. You know, I was just like, I'm going to talk to you. Uh, Rob actually has been on this podcast, Rob Candell. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And I, he was my ideal reader. Um, although I call him Maggie in the book, cause you know, you gotta like change people's, <laughs> gotta change things up, but it was Rob. And, um, and I just thought, what does Rob need to know? Like I really was um, very invested in him having a book in the world because I love him and I love who he is and what he knows how to do. And um, so I really wanted to have his book out there. And so I thought, well, what would I need to say to him first? Oh, I need to talk about this. Okay. What would I need to say to him second? Oh, it's this. And so I was talking on the page is what it felt like. And it was really, really easy. Now I'm not going to say that it would have been easy. And I know there are other books in my future that I feel scared to write because again, they go to the darker places and with the, you know, more emotional content. This was just pure joy getting to talk to people about what I love and getting to help people, you know, through, through the book, do the thing they want to do most, which is get a book in the world. It was just a delight. And I'm currently reading Rob's book. Oh, great. Yeah. And it's good. Love the Rob. Yeah. yeah he's wonderful. Um, oh, so much, so much. Okay. <laughs> so the, how do you know? So you know that those other books are brewing. Yes. How I do you do. know that? You know, I have, I always have this, um, you know, we all have different daydreams, like places where our mind just goes without us really when we're in the middle of something. So I'll be gardening or I'll be riding my bike or I'll be taking a walk and book ideas just start bubbling up. Meditation is like the number one place. Like if you want to, I don't know about anybody else, but like if you want book ideas, sit down and meditate because your mind is going to want to do something other than be there. <laughs> and so I, you know, I used to keep a little notepad next to my meditation cushion. Now I try not to, but um, because all these great ideas come up and it's just one of the things is constantly bubbling up. I think because I'm so immersed in it, my brain is always thinking, what would be the best, what would be the best book for this person? What would be the best book for this person? It's one of the few services I still offer actually at my company is a consultation. It's like the thing I like the most is to sit with someone, find out what do they have passionate about? What do they do in the world? And then from there go, okay, this is the book I think you should write. And so I'm all, my brain just is always 
kind of clicked on there. So yeah, I have ideas for books. And, you know, I had um, a pretty crazy time two years ago where my father and my partner died within two, two weeks of each other. And we're actually recording this in the middle of that two week period, interestingly. And um, that is something that taught me so much about life and I'm still digesting it and integrating it. But there is for sure a book in that because I learned so much about death, especially in the juxtaposition of my dad who was 86 and my parents being of a different generation and the way that they worked with his dying versus my partner being 38 and the way our community worked with his dying. They were just so radically different. And I want to talk about that difference and the choices that we all have around death and dying. It's something that's very close to my heart and I think really important. And I got a very interesting and up close and personal look at it. So that's a book that's in the future, but it's one that's not going to be, it's going to have its hard moments in the writing of it. I know that already for obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like having those two events so close together is kind of the universe's way to be like, you got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. It's funny. I just, I, I look at it and you couldn't even make it up. You know what I mean? You literally could not make it up. It's pretty, it's pretty funny, but, um, but it taught me a lot and it taught me, I, I, I am lucky. I have a predisposition to be able to, um, you actually talked about this. I listened to one of your podcasts where you talked about this sort of people are either born with a, an optimist mindset or, you know, mm -hmm. not. And, um, I think I'm an optimist and I'm someone who sees possibility in every experience. And so even when I was going through that experience, I was like, boy, am I going to be able to help people with this? Like I'm learning things right now that no one knows about what is available in terms of home funerals and how you can work consciously with your death prior to your death. Like, oh gosh, this is great information. I can't wait to bring it to, to people who need it. So that's just kind of the way my mind works a lot of the time. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's the, the direction I'm leaning for the next book, but we'll see. And that's all, it sounds like information that none, no one really wants to be thinking about. Like some right. people want to do the research on that. Right, right. Well, it's funny. I think I'm, an, I'm a little bit of a nerd that way. I was excited to, to I'm always interested in growing and learning and um, you know, there's nothing that's more of a great mystery than death, I think. And so when it was clear that we were facing this, you know, experience with my partner more than with my dad, um, I went straight into research mode. And it was one of the ways probably that I coped, honestly, with the experience yeah. of it, right? Um, but it was, it was beautiful and, and amazing what we got to see and what I got to learn in that place. And you're right, people don't want to know about it until the time is upon them. Mm -hmm. um, or upon one that they love, but I want to make a resource that's available then for people to reach to and, and really be able to digest. That's very helpful and almost even a step-by-step -step process. So that I'm, I'm so into the step-by-step -step process. If you work with me as an editor, I'm always like, can we, can we find a step-by-step -step process? Um, because I feel like that's what's most helpful to people, you know, and guides them through something that they need guidance from. And it makes it, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to glean what you need out of a book and different people learn different ways. But I think more people will be able to take, have a really solid takeaway if you give them a step-by-step -step process. So, this is so interesting. Toward it. I'm going down the human design rabbit hole. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Okay, oh, yeah. so my purpose, according to human design, is to get to the point. Fabulous. So when it comes to step-by-step -step stuff, mm. it's not gonna happen for me ah, unless ah. somebody else like holds my hand. Mm-hmm. Great. And give me the steps. That's what editors are for. <laughs> <This is why. laughs> 
need people like you. Exactly. A hundred percent. We all think so differently. And I'm a very procedural thinker. I, I, anything that happens, you tell me, okay, here's a task that needs to get done. My mind without me even trying goes to, okay, step one would be this. Oh no, no, no. Actually we'd have to do this first. So that's step one. And so it's like, I, I really just go into it naturally. And so I think that is what makes me a great editor and a great, you know, companion on the journey when you're in the process of trying to decide like, what am I supposed to write about? And how do I write about that? And, you know, I tell people, well, think about your ideal reader and what would you need to tell them first, second, and third? That's the way my mind works, but not everyone's mind works that way. I've also had to get right with the fact that not everyone is going to work from an outline. And for some people it's, it's, harder to work from an outline than it is to just write. And so in that case, what I say is that you write what you, you write what you can write, but know that you're going to need to invest in someone who's got a procedural mind and knows how to put a book together on the other side to take what you've created, you know, whatever it is that you've created, this sort of soup, it usually feels a little bit like a soup when you don't have an outline and make it more procedural so that a reader knows where they are in the middle of it. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the most important thing is that you're giving signposts to the reader and they're not confused about where are we going right now? Cause when, if a reader thinks, where are we going? They put the book down and they never pick it up again. And that's why. Yeah. I totally love that you're saying that when I was a writer, oh, writing an outline would just, it felt like, like I felt my inner two-year-old stomping. Mm. Just, yes. I do not want to do this, but sure. I'll write the piece. Yep. Like, yeah. Yep. I'll, yep. I'll go write that article. No yep. problem. Yep. And yep. then fine. I'll write you an, an outline afterwards. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Totally. I call that retroactive outlining. You know what? Like I really do. I sometimes it really works. I don't write an outline. I want to be clear. I don't write an outline for every single thing I write. I don't write an outline for a blog, for example, personally. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to long format writing, it is nearly impossible for me to know where I am if I'm not working from an outline. And this brings me to the point where I get to talk about something that I love so much, which is a piece of writing software called Scrivener. Have you heard of Scrivener? I have heard of it, but I okay. haven't used it. I am obsessed. I love it so much. Um, it is a system that gives you in one interface. So you open it up and you look at it, like think about you open up a word document, right? And you see this blank document. Imagine that there's on the left side of the page, a column where your whole outline is written out for you. And you can click on any subject in that outline. And it will take you to the document for that subject. So that way you can decide on a given day, where's your inspiration? I want to write about, you know, in my case, maybe I'm going to write about ghostwriters today. So I find the section that I've got, I've put my outline in there and I've created a little document for each one of those um, subheadings in my outline. I click on that ghostwriting subheading and I start writing about ghostwriting. It, it is like my most favorite thing in the world. And I feel like it kind of combines together a little bit of the impulse to have an outline and a little bit of the impulse to be able to write freely on a given day mm -hmm. where when you're working with word, which is definitely the standard in the book business. So you will need to have Microsoft word, especially when you start working with an editor, you'll need to export the whole document out of Scrivener into Microsoft word. But when you're drafting it, there's just nothing better than being able to feel free on a given day to write about whatever you want to write about without having to go dig through, well, where did that chapter start and what page was that on and how am I going to find that? I've got a 70 page document. I don't know quite where that piece should belong. Whereas in Scrivener, maybe you write about ghostwriting on one day and you think, you thought that was going in chapter two, but then you're like, no, 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 no. That needs to go in chapter seven. You click on that little part of your outline and you just drag it down to chapter seven. I mean, the ease 
that it affords is enormous in terms of writing a long format piece. Um, it is a very highly functional piece of software and many people feel overwhelmed. So here's what I always say, you only need the most basic understanding. So go to YouTube and Google or um, search on YouTube the 10 minute how to use Scrivener from Literature and Latte. Literature and Latte is the name of the company that makes Scrivener. And just watch that 10 minute video, you'll know everything you need to know to get started. And that, my friends, is my gift to you today is to tell you about Scrivener because it is absolutely the most amazing piece of software. I get no kickback for talking about it and I talk about it nonstop because it's been that helpful to me. It made such an enormous difference in my writing of my book and I want you to have that experience too. It sounds so simple. I think when people haven't tried writing something long or like really high robust. Yeah. Uh huh. That like, no, I just, all I need is more doc. Right. Right. But like, right. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a See, game. this is this is the place where I you know go back to everyone thinks they know how to write a book and all it takes is to just sit down and write it but there's a couple different things that are standing in your way. Number 1 is that it's an enormous amount of content. You know, 50 to 70,000 words is a lot of words and it's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. And you want to make sure that you're only using the words you need to use because you don't want to end up with 120,000 words because nobody wants to buy a doorstop, especially from a first-time author. So you have to be really choice about what you're going to write about and where. And to be able to get that, to encompass that whole thing with your mind is very difficult, which leads to the second issue that comes from people thinking, oh, I'm just, I should be able to write this book on my own, is that they sit down to a blank page and they think, now I'm writing my book. I mean where in the heck do you start, right? Your mind cannot hold that much content all at once and it gets scared. It's a way that we keep ourselves from actually doing the writing we wanna do is to say, I'm gonna sit down and write my book today. No, how about you sit down and you write a 400 word essay on ghostwriting or book doctoring or you know technical editing. Those are not your topics, those are my topics, but whatever your topics might be, right? I'm gonna write a little 400, word piece. I'm just going to say the absolute most important things about this topic that my reader needs to know. That your mind can get itself, it's wrap its arms around. And it's not scary. It seems easy enough. You know, you just have to do the pre-work of getting that outline together. And if you follow my instruction, you also need to get Scrivener and put the outline in Scrivener. <laughs> I mean, that's really, that is, that is one of the most important pieces that I explain to people is like, don't think that you're writing your book because your brain is not equipped to have, to hold that much content all at once. You need to say, today I'm working on this chapter or today I'm working on this subheading. Right, we can be outcome focused and focus on the finish line or we can focus on the process. Yes. And then when we, like 1% each day of growth. Yes, exactly, totally, yeah. This is one of the things, I mean, honestly, if I, if I have anything to say about what's happening these days in the world with self-publishing becoming so prominent. There's so many people out there who will purport to be able to guide you to write a book in six weeks um, and to focus on the outcome the whole way through and to just have a, get a book in your hand. And this sort of phrase, which I think actually does work with certain types of content, done is good enough. You know, you hear that a lot. Done is good enough. And Done is good enough for a blog. Done is good enough for a Facebook post. Done is not good enough for a book. I'm just here to tell you it's not. A book is a long journey. It's a marathon. If you want to sprint, write 
Facebook posts, write Instagram posts. They are actually a great way to start building your audience and getting your content out there. I love those formats. But if you want to write a book, you just need to know you're running a marathon and just be like, cool, I'm running a marathon. I'm going to train for it. I'm going to learn everything I need to learn. I'm going to take a little baby step today. I'm going to take another baby step tomorrow. I'm going to take another baby step the day after that. You have to really focus on the moment rather than on this idea of what it's going to be like, like the applause you're going to get at your first book signing. That may be a nice um, motivator to sit down and write the little bit today, but if that's the only reason you're writing a book, it's not going to be enough to keep you going all the way to the long haul because a book is actually a very, very long piece of content. I've think I've said that enough times. People are probably getting that now. Um, and it's important to know that it needs to be really good. You know, I had a gal hand me a book not that long ago. Um, she's like, here, want a copy of my book? I finished it in six weeks. And she literally said, done is good enough. Right. And I thought, oh, and I started reading it and I was like, oh no, 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 no. And wouldn't it be you know, what a sad thing to actually put in the kind of effort and time she did put in in those six weeks and the financial expense of actually getting the book self-published, getting a cover designed, et cetera, and then feel like she needs to apologize to people when she hands it to them and says, done is good enough. You know, like, I don't want you to apologize. I want it to be your best work. Mm -hmm. I, you know, the call to write a book is life calling you to something really big. It's not a short game. It's a big deal. And I, I really want you to take it seriously and to take that call seriously and to ask what would it take for you to actually answer that call with the most integrity that you possibly can and to work from there. Don't work from how fast can I get this into the world? Because the thing you get into the world will not be read. I'm just going to tell you, it won't be something that people will be willing to spend their precious few free moments in our overstimulated society reading. They're not going to read it. If you want people to read your book, you need to invest your time, energy, and love into it. Have you ever put a book down halfway through? Um, I put a book down after one to two pages. And this is what's funny is that you know, I often say this too, it's kind of arguing the opposite direction. A lot of times we put a book down, not having finished reading it, and we haven't finished reading it because the, there was not enough editing. There wasn't actually a strong structure. We are not totally sure where the book is going. We don't think it's really a good use of our time because we're confused, but we don't, we're not aware that that's why we're putting it down. We put it down and then we beat ourselves up for, oh gosh, I really meant to read my friend's book. I really wanted to read it. It seems like it would have been a really good book for me, but I just never got around to it. Shoot. But the truth is that my guess is it was not an easy read. It was not an entertaining read. Even if it was you know, informative, it still needs to be entertaining. And it wasn't actually giving you the goods that you wanted when you picked it up. Those are the reasons why we put books down. We put books down because they're not good enough, truly. And yeah. yeah. I remember... There was a certain fiction book that was written by a well-known author. It won some awards. Mm. I, was, I was about halfway through it and totally slogging through it. Yeah. And my college roommate posted on Facebook. She was like, this is an unpopular review of this book. <laughs> and I read through it. And she had been an English major. She's an amazing writer, novelist. Mm. She was writing. And I was like, oh. So Maybe it's not just me. <laughs> Should I keep pushing through? Or right. It down? And she's like, put it down. I was like, put it down. Yes. yes, I know it. Right. Totally. I mean, and of course, we all have our own tastes and flavors. And 
that's what makes this unique and interesting is that some people will love that book and other people won't love it. And people will love it for different reasons. You know, some people are reading books, like a lot of times the most, the books that get the most acclaim are the books that are doing something new and different within the, the genre, which may or may not actually, our tastes may not have caught up with that as as quote, just readers, you know, academics might be like, whoa, this is amazing and new and fabulous. You know, I think about William Faulkner, who is one of my absolute favorite writers, but I read him in class in, you know, college and got walked through what the heck was happening in The Sound of the Fury by a professor who had dedicated his life to Faulkner, right? So that's a very different environment to read it than if I just picked it up off the shelf. If I picked that book off the shelf, I would have put it down so fast. I mean, like the first quarter of the book does not make any literal sense. Okay. So it's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're one of those people. And you know, what's the truth is, is that Faulkner was never famous in his lifetime in the United States. The, the taste here had not caught up. He actually became very popular in France. Um, and it was really through the French that, and their acclaim for him and, and what they saw in his work that Americans started taking him seriously, but it was after he died. So, you know, I don't want that to happen to you, but you know, you never know. Maybe your book doesn't succeed in your lifetime, but you have no idea what's going to happen after or you die. Or, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was lucky enough to be walked through Dostoevsky in that way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just love Russian literature. Right. Exactly. Anyway, I want to sidetrack to back. You kind of, you made an aside about meditation practice. Yeah. Let's dive in. Yeah, there. let's dive in there. Yeah. So, what is that? Actually, I don't care what your practice is, but, but what, is your <laughs> life? what is the what? I didn't hear that. What is your meditation practice? Yeah. Why do you do it? Right. Well, so um, we have to scan all the way back to me being, you know, I moved to New York when I was 23 and I was um, also had grown up Christian, but had had sort of a um, disillusionment, strong disillusionment with it in the later years of high school and early years of college. And so I actually was not following any sort of spiritual path, but I'd always been a very devoted heart and a devoted seeker in other ways. Um, And so I kind of felt like I was walking through a desert in those, in the first half of my twenties, I was living in New York, which is a wonderful place to get um, your pedigree and to get your education, especially if you're in something like book publishing, but it was not a place to be if what you love is the natural world. (laughs) You know, if that's your favorite thing in the world, you don't get much of it there, you know? Um, and so I was, I, and I was one of those people and I, I kind of felt like a bit like a wilting flower for a lot of the time that I was there in spite of the fact that I was loving my work and I was doing, you know, great, great work and moving up the ladder in terms of um, being an editor in the world. And I loved my authors and my colleagues and all that, but, um, it just, I wasn't happy there. And so I was really confused because the book publishing business, you know, when you're in, you know, I was working at um, HarperCollins and Penguin and these big houses. Um, I, you think that there's no other place for you to go. Like you kind of have to be in New York or else. And so I was really caught between a rock and a hard place. And a girlfriend of mine, who's now a literary agent, she um, came into my office when I was working at Penguin in the Plume Division. And she said, you know, you're depressed. You need to read this book my mom keeps telling me to read. I haven't read it, but you need to read it. And um, it turns out this happens in the book publishing business, but also, of course, the breadcrumb trail of like life and spiritual development. It happened to be on my shelf. It was a book that a publisher had sent to me out of the blue, and I just put it on the shelf, didn't think about it. And it was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. So I started reading it, and, and um, it took me a couple tries to really get into it. But once I did, I read the entire thing in a weekend, and I came back and was felt transformed by it. And I said to another friend of mine in the book 
publishing business. I, I want to go to church for this book. I don't know where would I go to church for this book. And she read like the first 20 pages. She goes, this is Buddhism. Just go find a Buddhist, you know, someplace that's Buddhist. And at the time, you know, at the time I was covering. So one of the jobs of a book editor is that you, um, especially in a paperback house, which is where I was, is you cover hardcover houses, which means that you watch their list and you see what books are working in hardcover. And then you make offers. Hey, we'd like to buy the paperback rights to this book. So I had my eye on Pema Chodron, who was a well-known Buddhist. She was the only person I'd ever known was Buddhist. The only reason I knew she was Buddhist is that I was covering her house, um, which was Shambhala. And so I Googled Shambhala thinking I would find something. And sure enough, I found the New York Shambhala Center. And so I started kind of hovering around the edges of their Dharma night, their weekly Dharma gathering and trying to meditate at home. And it wasn't really working. And then um, I went on a, I switched jobs from, moved from Penguin to Hyperion and took a couple weeks off and out of the blue for no reason, borrowed a friend's car and drove to Nova Scotia, which is, as it turns out, is where Pema Chodron lives. And I didn't know that at all when I made the decision to go there. And um, I went and decided I would tour the, um, Ga the Abbey, Gampo Abbey, where she lives. And I walked in the door and there was the picture of Chogun Trunk from Rinpoche sitting right there. Um, on the wall, which is the same guy, you know, I'm like, Hey, that's the guy that's on the New York, you know, the New York Shambhala center. And I just, I remember saying to him as I walked in, okay, okay, I'll pay for the darn class, you know, <laughs> cause I've been avoiding, I didn't want to pay for meditation, but I saw him there. I'm like, you brought me all the way to Nova Scotia to tell me to pay for the class. Fine. I'll pay for the freaking class. So I did. And, um, that was how it all got started. And it was through a, a teacher at the New York Shambhala center that I, um, met the woman who ultimately put me up for the job. It sounds true. Um, and got me out of, out of, uh, New York into Colorado. And yeah, so it's been a good, you know, now 15, 16 years that I've been meditating and it's been just such a huge gift in my life in so many ways. How has it changed how you do life? Wow. I mean, you know, it's like, how do you even begin? Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> You know, I'd say the most important and thing that pops into my mind first is attention and the understanding that our attention and our, our that our capacity to be aware of greater and greater and greater amounts of information um, leads to more and more happiness. And it allows us to have more compassion, to see people as good inherently, and even when they're being bad or misbehaving or being reactive. Um, there's a lot of forgiveness of self that comes through the process. Um, you, you know, you're sitting there. It, I've done many long silent meditation retreats, you know, weeks at a time. And you sit there and you're just with yourself and you get to see the weather of your emotions. You get to see how one minute you're sad and the next minute you're happy. And um, you get to see how your mind runs away with itself and how that actually doesn't lead to greater happiness. And that it's when you bring it back to this moment sitting here on the cushion right now that the joy really arises. And then you get the joy that like tears streaming down your face with the joy and gratitude at just being alive. You know, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful way to study what it means to be a human being. And it's just been, yeah, it's one of the most important things in my life. Hmm. What does it mean to be a human being? Hmm. Um, you know, go back to the Buddhist, the, the constant change of impermanence. And um, I think what it means to be a human being is to dance with the impulse to make everything static and have certainty while living in a universe that is inherently uncertain. Hmm. And that dance and that letting go and saying, okay, I really would like for, to know right now 
that this is the way it's going to be forever. And to just laugh at yourself and say, I have no idea. There's no way to know. And to, and to learn how to be okay with that. I love that you include the laugh with yourself because yeah. I do feel like the more mindful we are, the more aware, the more conscious, the more hilarious we are. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally true. And I mean, you get to this point where you just see, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing that again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, okay. I always say like, okay, Kel, got it, heard it. Let's move on. <laughs> we don't have to do this again, you know? And, um, and, you know, you get to see the ways in which your little one, the youngest version of you is still driving the bus in so many different places and how her assumptions are decades out of date and yeah. that we can actually um, love her and also take the wheel back as the adult version of ourselves. That's been one of the greatest learnings and greatest gifts and most important um, tools that I have in my own toolbox for sanity is to say, okay, baby, I know what you're scared of and you don't have to be scared of that anymore. So let's just take the wheel. Why don't you just go and you know sit back there and let someone love you and, and hug you the way that you needed to be hugged when you were three years old. Yeah. And um, I'm the adult and I'm going to drive from here. Yeah. That Just that by itself changes your whole life. Yeah. I love that image too. Of like, go sit in the back seat and you'll be loved and yeah. snuggled <laughs> and so safe and everything. Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and being with ourselves there, it's like, I think one of the biggest um, roadblocks that many of us struggle with is wanting someone else to do that, wanting someone else to show up and love our little one. And when you don't realize that's what you're asking for, you just think of like, I want someone who's going to love me the way I deserve to be loved. And you're like, uh, no, your three-year-old is driving the bus right now. And yeah, it is so deeply sad that she did not get what she needed when she was three. And there is nothing we can do that will ever make up for that except for to acknowledge it and say, on behalf of the world, we are very sorry that she had to go through that. And she's not the one who's sitting in front of me right now. You're, you're a grown up, <laughs> and we need to hold both, you know? And um, that's one of the, the things that I seek out in friendships and relationships and the people that I surround myself with is the understanding of, oh, right. Yeah, I'm being run by things that are not actually present day. And that awareness comes from meditation in my experience. So it's not that I only surround myself with meditators, but I can feel one in a crowd. I'm like, oh, you, you've done your work. (laughs) I can play with you. And that often tends to be who I choose to spend most of my time with. How would you describe feeling it in a crowd? I agree with you. I'm curious about how Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a way that people look at you. There's a, a, type, a level of eye contact that's available that belies an, an intimacy with life and with self that allows us to not feel scared of intimacy with others. I think that <clears throat> that's one of the, when it really comes down to it, meditation is becoming deeply intimate with self and with life and getting comfortable with that, even though for many of us, it, it's a journey to get comfortable with that, you know? And so someone who's really, you can feel their solid foundation, like their base is like there. They know that they deserve to be here, that they belong, that they're lovable, that they're safe. You can just feel it. It's a different level of being able to connect. And that's, that's the thing I think that I notice in people. It's like, oh, you are actually looking at me directly in my eyes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing each other more deeply than the average person 
And that's so attractive to me. Mm. Oh, I feel friends that, yeah. and, and clients and everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we get to choose who we surround ourselves with. Oh yeah. And you know, to greater or lesser degrees, we still all have families and there's still the things that we get to navigate there. But I've, in my own experience, the more intimate I am willing to be with myself, the, the safer I become for others to mm-hmm. open up to and to be vulnerable to. And so even the, the relationships I've thought, well, that one's never going to change. It's like the miracles show up every day and you're like, wow, I changed. And th- thus this dynamic changed. It's pretty amazing. Yes. I, oh, I agree with you completely. And I also remember the Ram Dass quote that's something like, you think you're enlightened, go spend time with your family. Right, exactly. A hundred percent. Oh yeah, I definitely, you know, I've, I've learned that I can be super chill with my family when I'm feeling intensely resourced in myself. But mm-hmm. if I am feeling run down or like, you know, I've been working too hard or whatever, that's just a recipe for a conflagration, especially yeah. with my mom. <laughs> and yep. it's just like, okay, so I know that about myself and I know what I'm walking in with when I, you know, go see her. And, you know, the great thing about a mom, at least my mom, is that she loves me no matter what. And, you know, doesn't even really notice when I'm off my game. I'm the one that notices. That's what happens when you meditate is you start to really get to know yourself and you can feel, oh gosh, I am depleted in a way that 15 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you if I was depleted. I was depleted all the time um, yeah. living in New York, which wasn't where I was supposed to be. And now I'm like, oh, wow, I feel super resourced. I can go into this. I can handle it. Like the little pings and, and things here and there. I'm like, all right, that's just my little one getting pinged because that hurt when she was in fourth grade. But, you know, it's like I can do that when I'm resourced. When I'm not, I'll just come back and be like, did you realize how you're always picking on me? For my-? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, we're human, right? And we can laugh at ourselves and go, yeah, we don't have to be perfect. We just are who we are. And this be perfect. Is funny. It is. It is. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, this conversation has gone really quickly. Yeah, That's what I oh realized. I'm just <laughs> able to talk. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess we're at the end of this. Wow, crazy, crazy. So let's tell people how they can get your book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The book you were born to write is the name of the book. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, And I also have a website and it's KN, which is my initials, Kelly Notaris, knliterary.com. And that is a site where you can explore a ton of free content. I do a YouTube channel. I have a blog. I really want to give you the resources you need to be able to take whatever the next step is on your book journey, because everyone's next step is And then we also have a really amazing resource in that I have three gorgeous editors um, who are, I call them our editorial matchmakers. And you can sign up for a free call with them at any time. We are a zero hard sell company. Truly, we want to help you get to the next step, whether it's with us or someone else. Sign up for a free call, jump on the phone with them. If you do decide you want to do some work with us, um, you can just mention Kelsey's name or the name of the podcast, and um, we'll give you 10% off of your first service with us as a friends and family discount. So you're welcome to come explore in whatever way works for you. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't cover? Oh my gosh. What, what all the things, there's so many things we didn't cover, but I I love what we did cover. (laughs) It feels, it feels like the the most important things that we covered. So I feel like there's still so much beneath the surface. Yeah. We didn't quite get to. Yeah. Well, we'll do that again. We'll have to do it again. I'm in. (laughs) You say the word. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, 
please head over to Facebook and join the group, Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.